The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we talk to two artists of different generations whose work reflects on migration and memory. Later in the podcast, we hear from Christoph Gill, who explores the historic persecution of European Roma communities in a new installation in London. It was very surprising for me because when I recorded the interview with my grandmother, I noticed that for her, she didn't have the conscience that that she was persecuted. For her, it was very, it was natural. Okay, this is our reality. But first, this week, Edmund Duval. It's been a busy autumn for the ceramic artist and writer. On the 21st of November, Duval sold 79 Netsuki at a London auction. The tiny Japanese sculptures in wood and ivory had passed down through five generations of Duval's ancestral family, the Afrusi, and were the inspiration for his best-selling memoir, The Hair with Amber Eyes. The sale raised nearly 80,000 for the charity Refugee Council. Earlier in November, Duval was in Vienna, where many of his forebears were from, to mark the long-term loan of a further 170 Netsky to the Jewish Museum there. They joined Duval's family archive, which was donated to the Jewish Museum earlier this year. Meanwhile, he has two exhibitions of new work in California, and is planning a show at the Frick Collection in New York next year. Edmund is with me now. Edmund, I'd like to begin with the Netsky, because for those listeners who may not have read The Hair with Amber Eyes... I wonder if you could explain to us what are Netsky and what's their personal significance to you? Well, they're very small. That's the most significant thing about them. They're very small sculptures for the hand, made in Japan, mostly in ivory, but sometimes in wood. 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, they were used uh, to hold uh, part of a um, little bag together, which hang off the kimono in Japan. And they were enormously collected um, in Europe, after Japan was opened up, they became sort of cult objects amongst all the fashionable collectors of Japanism. And they, uh, one of my ancestors in in Paris in the 1870s, part of a sort of sign of a very substantial Jewish banking dynasty called Charles Foussy, a, a, a great writer on art and collector, bought a collection of them in the 1870s. And then uh, they've been in my family ever since, and they're really the, the 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 story which I wrote about is really the story about how this particular collection moved from Paris to Vienna into my Viennese family, and then survived as the only thing that survived um, the Shoah, the Holocaust, and the and the um, uh, uh, and the great terrors of the twentieth century as the one part of my family collection to survive. So I inherited them. 264 of them beautiful things and told the story and and i have this collection now there are 264 of these in that collection uh recently you you uh auctioned 79 of them uh to benefit the refugee council i'm intrigued by the timing why why now it's a very particular moment so this was a family decision. My father is almost 90 and my children are fierce, active, politicised 20, 19 and 16-year-olds. And we sat together and we looked at this collection and we realised that, that we absolutely loved having it in our lives and hands. That um, this was a moment of total crisis in Europe. You know, this is the biggest refugee crisis 
since the Second War. My father was a refugee. The only reason that we exist as a family was that he was allowed to come to to, to Britain in 1939. Um, so, you know, the, the status of refugees now is hugely significant to us as a family. And so we thought, actually, this collection is a symbol um, of of migration. I mean, it's 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 a beautiful collection of migratory objects. Um, and for me, that's the story I tell in the book. And we decided we'd do two things. One was to sell this part of the collection for now, you know, for, 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 for the Refugee Council, for unaccompanied refugee children at this moment. Can't think of anything better to do with it. Raised a huge amount of money. And the second thing, which gained a lot of, of interesting positive and ne- negative reactions, was to put on long-term loan to the Jewish Museum in Vienna, the whole of the rest of the collection, to send it back to, to Vienna. Can you, can you tell me what negative reactions you've had then? Yeah, I've had a lot of people, um, well, not a lot of people, I've had some people say, how can you bear Vienna? How can you take things back to Vienna? They only just got out, you know, they, your family was almost destroyed in Vienna. What are you doing taking things back to Vienna and obviously for me it's a hugely significant thing I've been working in Vienna a lot over the last decade Um, I'm I'm very conscious that this is a kind of inverse restitution (laughs) you know we, we may talk about this but restitution of course is the giving back of looted art it's the it's the it's the bringing back to families of objects and stories that have been have been have been um, stripped from them during the Holocaust era, but I'm hugely, it's a hugely significant thing, and I'm I'm very very supportive of that. Of course I am, you know, it's part of my life. But I'm also interested in something slightly different, which is the creative taking back of stories to these places of beginnings, to Vienna or to Berlin or to wherever and making those stories much more vivid, much more real in these interesting, complicated cities now. It's a way in of, of bringing a cross-cultural experience of the past into the present. Is that, is that right? It's absolutely right. So, you know, at the risk of sounding like a braggart, <laughs> but I'm going to say it, I've had two meetings with presidents over the last three weeks with the president of Austria when I took back the... Um, the, the Netsky to, to to Vienna and our family archive to to um, to Austria, and he was taught fascinatingly about the about this crisis of empathy that there are all these new uh, communities within Austria, uh, refugee communities who have no connection. Of course, they have no connection at all with the Anschluss, with the Nazi era, uh, with um. um how can they or should they connect with that historical past? They've come from places of enormous trauma themselves. They've often come with a suitcase, just like my father came with a suitcase here in 1939. So the, so what you want to happen is to try and tell the stories of loss, of diaspora, powerfully for now, and connect, connect uh, these stories with with what's happening at this moment and you can do that and who was the second sorry the second one was was yesterday in berlin because there's been this extraordinary conference 
20 years of the Washington principles that end on Tuesday, um, which was looking at the uh, where um, different countries are going with these, these, these principles about the restitution of, of, of looted art. And I met the federal president, Steinmeier, on Tuesday. And again, we talked about what place the memory of the Shoah holds now in, Germ now in Germany. You know, how far does guilt take you with a complicated new political situation, with a new generation of people coming in, um, the rise of the right? How can you actualize and make vivid um, the place of memory in, in today's society? And one of the ways you can do it is with art. One of the ways you can do it is using the idea of looted art, the idea of stripping people from their homelands and bring it into creative contemporary uh, projects. Did you feel optimism about the future of restitution? Is there a sense in which people are, you feel people are trying their best to do the right thing? No. I feel, I feel exhausted. I feel it's 20 years since these principles. I looked around this hall of 900 people provenance researchers, museum directors and lawyers and felt a great weariness. I felt, you know, I think I felt that people were still trying to create databases and doggedly do their research. But, and of course, this is the last moment when the people of my father's era, and of course, era survivors are still alive. So there's a sort of sense of it being a last gasp for that particular bit. But no, I didn't feel optimism. I felt great weariness. I also felt that it wasn't being very creative, <laughs> you know. And I can put this very strongly. I can say, actually, very bluntly, you know, it's really, really important that people get back their looted art. But to make that count and mean something in a wider community is a different piece of work, and that work hasn't happened. This subject brings me to a show which you curated at the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna in 2016, a tumultuous year. Uh, that show was called During the Night, and it reflected a mood of anxiety through the works in that collection. And it seems to me that what you were clearly attempting to do at that time was to look to the past and to evoke the disasters of the past and almost as a warning to the present. Yes, that's the much better description I could ever have done. I mean, the, the imitation, of course, it, you know, is an interesting institution to work for because it was the institution that in itself uh, organised the looting of all the Jewish families, including my own family's art, the day after the Anschluss, there they are collecting art from families all. So it's an interesting institution to work for. So then the invitation, what do you want to do there? You know, am I going to choose Bruegel's? <laughs> you know, and I'm going to choose my, my favourite Rubens thing and something from the Kunstkammer? No, absolutely not. I'm going to choose the objects that make me anxious, as you say. And I chose as the heart of it this extraordinary Durer watercolour where he wakes up in the middle of the night and he sees the ends of the world. It's, it shows um, great um, torrents of water coming down. It's an extraordinary image. 
and and it's and and he has no agency he's completely alone there's nothing he can do and he writes this description of of being alone during the night and of course it's it's really the first um western description of nightmare um and it's also a description, of course, of Kristallnacht, of, of, of the Anschluss, of every single experience of being, having no agency in the world at all, that so many people know. And so, 16, a terrible year of fracture in Europe, and a terrible year of feeling alone. I wanted to make an exhibition that, 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 that explored that, um, in a, in a, in a, generative way not not in not in the day making it sound terribly didactic it wasn't at all it was looking at things and seeing how they work together and uh, and seeing what would happen and and of course it divided opinion i mean you know a lot of people were deeply offended um by 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 the show which in some ways i thought was rather good that's right there's a feeling that one needs strong reactions right now because there's a tendency to apathy which is happening all around us and that has actually prompted some of the extraordinary upheavals in Europe and the US and Latin America to to happen yeah and i mean it, it, in terms of in terms of the the place of art within that you know um you know i was so conscious that across time people had felt you know huge desperate end of the world anxiety before us and made art out of it and it was sort of reaching out and sort of touching these places and, and finding finding that as a, as a provocation for now um and also you know the great thing about exhibitions is 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 you bring different kinds of communities into one space so they they beget conversation you know and that in fractured times that's almost the ultimate thing you can hope for is to begin conversations. Let's talk about another institutional show, which is particularly intriguing to me, which is that you're going to take on the Frick in New York. I love this idea that you've expressed that you want to see the Frick as a sculpture in itself. Can you tell me more about that? Well, everyone loves the Frick. It's everyone's favourite place and they know... Uh, Know, this Titian and that Rembrandt self-portrait and the Vermeer and this extraordinary table by Gautier and that bit, etc. So everyone loves something in the Frick. But my feeling about the whole, the whole of this extraordinary museum is that it's put together in some ways as a series of attempts at autobiography by Frick. He's trying out being French, Fragonard, Watteau. He's trying out certainly being English, that extraordinary dying full of Gainsborough. You know, he's trying out to to create a kind of, you know, he has sort of Schloss envy. There's a great kind of moment of kind of German kind of seriousness at the heart of it, and so on. And and all this autobiography through collecting from this man who came from nothing. But what it does as a series of journeys through these ensembles of extraordinary art put together is is to create a, a series of movements, a series of places of 
of stillness and then of movement and of, of it's it's um it's a uh, it's a sort of breathing out and breathing in it's a, a kind of experience as you walk through and so i'm very interested in in working with the in, the intervention or installation or whatever we call it the piece that i'm making for the frick to treat the whole building as one and find different places where i'm going to just simply briefly still um, um, a moment in the frick. I, I suppose the tendency among people that may not know your work very well would be to think that because you make works using ceramics that you would be making you would be likely to riff on the decorative objects in the frick but it seems to me that it's the architecture and, and the fine art uh, that you're responding to with particular gusto. Well, the gusto comes in many places, actually, to be absolutely frank, Ben, because, because of course, if you're if with the sculpture that I'm making, I mean, I make vitrines which are being placed in particular places. They're being placed on extraordinary bits of furniture. So already I'm dealing with the decorative arts. I'm already I'm dealing with some of the most extraordinary furniture, you know, in the Western world. I'm also dealing with light because the way that light comes into the building. Um, famously low light levels as well within the within the within um the collection so 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 placing light and then absolutely absolutely thinking about particular portraits particular places um um and particular histories around the collection as well so it's 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 a moment of um at this moment it's a moment of pure panic because it's it matters to get this right you know it's a lot of scrutiny rightly i suppose that that's right because it, it it must be daunting as a contemporary artist knowing that your work is going to be seen in the presence of all these old masters even if the language is quite a different one yeah who would be blase i mean who you know it's it's a it's a real honor obviously to do it they've never had a contemporary artist working with them um so what i'm what i'm but what i'm really thinking hard about is this idea of 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 persona that frick adopts in in his collect in his collecting so i i'm interested in how you how collecting is is a way of being someone else someone other and that of course is about identity and that's something that i've thought about and written about and made about a lot over the last 25 years let's talk about your two shows on the west coast of the u.s at the moment again there's a historical site but it's a much more recent historical site but obviously it also refers back to vienna again so tell me about your intervention in the schindler house well, I have to say the Shin House, I've loved it for forever. I've had a picture of it up on every single studio wall. It's, it's, um, for those people who haven't been there, it's a, it's an ex 1922, um, maverick contemporary building built for, by Rudolf Schindler for himself and his wife and another couple. And it's a low building, which looks at first sight almost Japanese, like a pavilion. But in fact, it's a radical series of spaces made of concrete and wood where one space can be reconfigured as another. So it's an experimental building for experimental living. It's utterly beautiful. So what I tried to do was to very severely bring in 
a few pieces, almost sort of in a choreographic way to illuminate, truly illuminate, bits of how light works in the building comes in, a particular material places where materials are brought together, concrete, redwood, uh, um, tin, extraordinary materials being brought together. And, and, and just find a way of sort of being in the house with some conviction, but not overbearingly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, um, and I've loved it. And I brought music in as well. I, um, there's a piece of Webern cello music being played by a great friend of mine, Matthew Barley, and a new piece by Simon Fisher-Turner, which was commissioned for the house too. One of the things about your work is that it constantly evokes the condition of other art forms. So it might be architecture, it might be music, as you just said, and the Gagosin show that's on at the moment actually aspires to the condition of poetry to a extent, and actually includes quotations. Yeah, well, I'm finally coming out that actually what I'm doing is poetry. I mean, it's taken me forever <laughs> to do this. But actually, yes, it is poetry. Um, so, you know, my, my, what, I, what I make often of, of vitrines, you know, substantial series of objects, different materials, not just porcelain, marble, or silver, or all kinds of things being put together. And for me, those groupings of objects um, have a very strong sort of connection to how I remember poetry, groups of words, phrases, um, sound. And what I did with this particular show was to was to th- remember some of my very the poems that I've carried with me all my life pieces of Wallace Stevens bits of Rilke Emily Dickinson and then really just remake in my studio over a long period of time those memories and actually endlessly iteratively writing bits of these poems down on fragments of porcelain which now actually have ended up within these Vitrine. So you have objects and text and space, and it's all a kind of poem. Is it fair to say that also, though, that your work with its rhythms, even if there isn't actually the written word contained within a vitrine, quite often with its rhythms, your work does uh, have a kind of literary or lyrical quality and also almost a notational quality in relation to music. Yeah, I, absolutely, absolutely. I hope so anyway. I mean, kind of, yes. And I mean, the people who, who matter to me most are, you know, cross the borders of this. So John Cage, of course, you know, I've learned so much from, from him, listening to him, reading him and, and looking at the scores, looking at his ways of understanding time in a graphic form, which is what I'm hoping my sculpture does. And then more latterly, over the last 20 years, the poetry of Paul Celan, the great writer in German, who's, for whose who's, who's, who's poetry on the page is obviously words, but is also a kind of sculptural notation. So his use of the, of, of, of the white space of the page has been hugely, radically exciting for me. It's, it's interesting you, you, you talk about Salan because if, when you think of Salan in, in terms of visual art, there's, there's, what, there's you on the one hand and then there's Kiefer on I know, the other hand. I know. And I suppose yes. in a way I, that makes me feel very optimistic about contemporary sculpture and contemporary art because, it, because the, that you couldn't, in a way, your language is, couldn't be more opposed to Kiefer. But it suggests that poetry and other art forms can 
provide a kind of um, all manner of languages with which to express a reaction. Yeah, and you know, so Kiefer, Kiefer's Silan comes out of you know the the the, the devastation of post-war Germany, and and that's he inhabits that so profoundly. And for me, for me, it's it's an oral experience. I, I hear Silan, um, and and in a completely different way. And and obviously, don't go Kiefer Woods at all. <laughs> but 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 that's the point, isn't it? You know, that's the point about about truly great things out there, whether it's Silan or or, or extraordinary picture by Titian or whatever, generates. Over, over the generations, extraordinary differing responses. And in fact, you're producing an edition with Ivory Press, which relates directly to Paul Celan. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's my first ever artist book, and it's it's uh, we're, we're it's Madrid in, in February. It's called Breath, and I've uh, had a, it's an edition of six extraordinary, huge, almost biblical books bound in vellum. Um, edition of Silan's poems, and uh, and a text by me. And what I've done is to is to wash porcelain slip across these poems, and then rewrite them. So it's a kind of palim through the porcelain slip. So I, it's a palimpsest. It's one text on top of another for for Silan. It's finding all those different breaths and spaces and interstices within Silan's poetry. So that's. I'm living and breathing Salam at the moment. Emily Dickens, another figure that I'm really interested in because she seems to prompt a plethora of reactions from visual artists. And I wonder what it is about her poetry that makes so many visual artists respond. Can you put your finger on it? Yes, I can. It's, 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 the, it's, it's the 20th and 21st century obsession with the fragment. So go back to the 18th century and, and look at the fragment. And it's a wonderful bit of art history there. But actually, when you when you when you look at 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 Dickinson on a page, particularly the notation of it, those extraordinary breath marks between the words, they have a crystalline quality to them, but a fragmentary crystalline quality to it. And that, of course, speaks to to this feeling of dispersion of not things not being able to fit together. And that's entirely where so many people are now. So you read Emily Dickinson and you have this powerful sense of of, of different energies um, sitting near each other on a page. And graphically, they are beautiful. Who, who, who wouldn't want to respond to her? Edmund, thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed, Ben. Edmund Duval's show, The Poems of Our Climate, is at Gagosian in San Francisco until the 8th of December. His exhibition, One Way or Other, is at the Schindler House in Los Angeles until the 6th of January 2019. Edmund Duval at the Frick Collection in New York opens on the 29th of May 2019 and will continue until next November. And the exhibition at the Jewish Museum in Vienna about Edmund's family and its collections will take place from November next year. I'll be back talking to Christoph Gill after this. The myth of Icarus, the boy who flew too close to the sun and came to grief when the wax holding up his wings melted, is well known. It's given us a neat phrase with which to skewer the overambitious, and it's been a favourite subject for artists and poets down the ages. 
The Italian Baroque master Andrea Sacchi, for example, revisited the theme a number of times. A newly attributed version, Daedalus fastening wings on his son Icarus, comes to auction in Bonham's old master painting sale in London on the 5th of December. According to Bonham's head of old master paintings, Andrew McKenzie, the attribution is of major significance. No comparable, fully authenticated work, which displays Sacchi's crucial place in art history, has appeared at auction in recent years. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. At L'Etrangère Gallery in London's East End is an exhibition of a young Polish artist, Christoph Gill, called Welcome to the Country Where the Gypsy Has Been Hunted. It's based on Gill's PhD, looking into the history of the Roma peoples and particularly the tradition of Heidenjachten, or gypsy hunt, a pursuit that was chillingly legal and prevalent in Germany and the Netherlands from the 17th century until as late as the 19th century. In the installation, you enter a wooden textile construction like a temporary shelter and are plunged into near darkness, interrupted only by a dim, revolving bulb which gently illuminates chalk drawings on a black background. They evoke the great paintings in Baroque courts made while the persecution was happening. The unmistakable features of a Habsburg jaw, for instance, appear through the gloom. The drawings also feature a pile of hunter's trophies, including a deer, a hare, a bird and a Roma person. Christoph is with me now. Christoph, what's the historical background to your work? Uh, actually, the, the historical background is very important to read the sense of the art installation because it's based on, on uh, historical events. During my, because the, the, the installation that you can see in L'Etranger Gallery, it's, uh, it's my PhD work. So it has a, a research background. And... Uh, in that research, I was analyzing the history from Roma from the beginning of uh, when they come to Europe in 10th century, and and particularly in this uh, in this uh, installation, uh, I put the uh, part of the 17th century uh, events uh, that uh, talk about. Uh, Hunting on Roma people that took place in uh, in the Netherlands and, and Germany in the 17th century. So, uh, in that time in Europe, there were many uh, persecutions of Roma people because the 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 uh, Europeans tried to deal with the problem that that they defined as Roma people. So there there was lots of uh, lots of uh, very terrifying um, laws that that was put against Roma people. So, uh, so it started uh, uh, in Netherlands and and in and in Germany. And uh, the first law was was uh, uh, permission to that you, that any person could kill Roma people without any consequences. So th- this was the, like like the first step. To the Roma hunting, and uh, and this involved uh, during the time because the it started at 17th century, it ended and at 19th century. So it it was a long uh, period of time. Yeah, terrifyingly recent. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's recent because I was also shocked that it finishes the last uh, documents that we can fi- find are from 19th century. Uh, and it became in the first it was a thing that that uh, was very political because it was a kind of law that 
that citizens should do that should fight uh, this Roma uh, Roma people that were not uh, that were not uh, the same as as the rest. So uh, it first it was a law, and then during the centuries it became uh, this pervert. Uh, I don't know, not a tradition, but some kind of of uh, enjoyment of high classes in in Netherlands and, and essentially like a pastime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it, they regularly, as they hunt on animals in the woods, they hunt for for uh, for Roma people. So this is this is the the one story. It was very important to tell, and I use this hunting as a metaphor for like persecution in general. So you have a one history that is in the 17th century and the other history that you can um because you go inside the installation and you can hear inside a voice uh and it's a voice of my grandmother that that talk about the history that happened in the 50s in Poland. And and so we should say say to the listeners you you are a Roma person. Yeah. You you have a Roma background and you can hear your grandmother speaking mm-hmm. in this dark room that you enter um is your grandmother speaking in a particular dialect yes because i'm i'm a i'm a roma because roma people roma nation is it's diverse and and has a, a, a couple of groups and i'm i'm from uh, from uh, a group that is called bergitka roma it's the roma from the mountains from south of poland and um this group uh, settled down in the f- in the 15th century so they didn't have this nomadic life because they were uh uh they found the, their 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 space there in, in south of poland because they they were making uh things from iron from metal and, and they make a living out of it so they settled down in the 15th century that's why uh, the, the the group that I, that i was raised in it w- is the one of the group that is more uh say open-minded or more modern uh, because they have the time to they settle down they didn't have to travel they, they could place roots yeah. and that would allow mm-hmm. that allowed them to develop modern um cultural yes yeah mm-hmm. um the installation the the form of the installation it, it appears to be like a temporary settlement can you describe what that is a reference to because you know the what also the 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 very big uh, influence in this uh, installation like for me was time like in general so i will, uh, i tried to put put uh, <clears throat> many things that could lead the viewer to read the installation so uh, that's why we have the, the 17th century we have the 15th century in the story and also the, the thing that you see outside it's mixed from uh, this temporary uh, building, uh, Roma do it, but not only Roma. We can find it in, in South of Africa, also in ghettos and stuff like that. So it's like a barrack mixed with the tent. And uh, I um, prepare it, um, making a recent how Roma people built the temporary houses in Europe, like from the beginning. So they use uh, um, textiles found uh, things wood um ropes so it's it's based like how they build and also uh and also the um, it's important that you can put it fast 
and take it in the other place. So the installation is like that. You can you can have it inside the gallery and you can put it outside. So it's also uh, uh, also nomadic, as you, as you can say. And 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 you enter the enter this space, and around you are these exquisite drawings, which are based on historic paintings from the Renaissance mm-hmm. and Baroque eras. Mm-hmm. It occurred to me when I was in this space, which is dimly lit. You have this very dim light that mm-hmm. sort of tracks round this circular space. It occurred to me that these drawings were almost like phantoms, like ghosts. Mm-hmm. Is that was that your intention? Yeah, it was the intention because when you think about Roma, they are actually not existing in our in European culture, like in our legacy of what we think is a culture it's arts it's literature and stuff like that and when they appear in that they're always ter- appear in the stereotypical way so i ha- i need to f- i had to find a way to show roma people but not uh using this this stereotypical images so uh i decided to to use the language of 17th century painters to tell the story that was uh, covered down in history because it's actually uh, it's not, not a thing that people know about. Uh, we don't have any visual evidence, any paintings about the huntings. So I uh, decided to, to recreate how it would look like in that period of time in 17th century, this, this scene of, uh, of, of the hunting. And um, the, the appearing that you said about the ghost, it's it's actually a very good point because it's for me it was like a picture that suddenly appears like a, like a ghost and then c- could disappear. It, occur- it it occurred to me that it was it was therefore like an entry into the imagination of Roma people in that period because these were the kind of people that would have been hunting them yes. and. What's interesting to me is that, of course, these are, I mean, for instance, there's Velasquez's Felipe IV, so the, the, the king of Spain, and who, who was a Habsburg, mm-hmm, yeah. and Habsburgs were right at the heart of the rulemaking which dictated that people could kill, legally kill Roma people. Yes. So you're actually looking directly at the persecutors of Roma people around you in that space. That's a very good point because I, 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 I use the, the, the tools, the language of, of the... Uh, of the perse- persecuted, yes. So they, this is their way to talk about things, and also it's very like typical for art uh, in in the past centuries to talk about to show terrifying periods from history in a very beautiful way. So yes. so it's uh, uh, this is also for me very, was very important to show show that. Um, I'd like to talk about contemporary Poland because. There in in Britain, and I'm sure many of our listeners in other parts of the world will will be will be aware that in Poland there has been a nationalist government, and it is persecuting all kinds of people. Uh, how have Roma people fared in the current situation? Like, like to under, understand uh, how it how it feels like for. Uh, minority or, or for, for Roma you have to have this bigger picture because it's it's a it's a tradition of persecution that is in many centuries many centuries so Roma people actually it was very surprising for me because when I uh, recorded the interview with my grandmother that you can see here inside I noticed that for her she didn't have the conscience that that she was 
persecuted. For her, it was very, it was natural. Okay, this is our reality. We are like that. So they didn't have a reflection. The, the older uh, people from Roma society didn't, didn't have a reflection that they are uh, persecuted. So Roma raised in that uh, particular situation and tried to d- deal with it. So it, it it's not not a thing that it's mm, it appears suddenly, but it's there. And if the political situation is changing to a bit radical, then then we feel it. Then we feel that we notice that that that, that it's it's existing. Do you hope that people will come to this exhibition and gain a greater understanding of Roma people today and historically? That was a purpose for it, and uh, it's it's a thing that I think it, it's not going to change. Like in in uh, in a short period of time, we need many many things, many. Uh, exhibitions, many literature, many, many things to edu- educate people. So this is the like like a step that I take to to uh, educate people because the 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 narration behind the art and uh, it's very important and and it's the art is it's a great tool to tell stories and um, and it's very important for me to show people. The history, okay, in 17th century it was like that, and they get the bigger picture why 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 the situation is like this today. Because uh, when we take, for example, uh, because for me it was also very important not to focus. Okay, it's it's focused on Roma people, but it has a, a universal meaning to it. Because when you take Roma Roma people as a, as a, Thing to look at when you when you see how they came in the 10th century to Europe, and how the politics uh, treat them, and now we have the consequence of it. Then you then you can see the the bad way that that that, that they took because uh, the situation of Roma people is a consequence of uh, of bad politics in from many centuries. So. Uh, you have the, the persecutions. You have the the language issue because Roma were not allowed to speak uh, uh, in their language. You have many many things that put Roma out of the society. So it could be a good example for maybe others to come, or maybe maybe not example, or maybe a reflection. Do you think there's a significant enough presence of Roma artists in the art world, or do you feel that still has a long way Actually, to go? that's a very good question because I had a big uh, problem because it's it's not uh, first thing. This is not my first Roma art project because I I I, I was doing it for many many years. After I started my art art education, it was always there the subject. And actually, uh, I had a big problem in Poland to find galleries. Uh, to find uh, curators that could tell, okay, this is important. We have to talk about it because they didn't understand the importance of the of the matter and say, okay, what are you going to show? You're going to show dancing Roma. You're going to show, uh, I don't know, the the, the musicians, or uh, they, but be, because they didn't have any knowledge. So, luckily, I found a gallery in Krakow, this Hendrik Gallery, that is very, very modern, very contemporary, very open in Krakow. 
and uh, I found uh, a curator, uh, Alexander uh, Tsurusadaris, with me here in London that uh, have a very big uh, intuition in this uh, in this installation. I said, okay, this is very good and we need to show it. So, uh, so that's why there are not many visible artists, Roma artists. That, uh, of course, they are. Uh, but they had a, a problem to go in the mainstream with the with the with the with the matter with their art. So there's a long way to go. Yes, Christoph, thank you for the meantime for coming to see us. Thank you very much. Welcome to the country where the gypsy has been hunted is at L'Etranger Gallery in London until the fifth of January 2019. And that's all for this week. Do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and let us know what you think on Twitter where you can follow us at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. Our main Twitter account and Facebook are at The Art Newspaper and the Instagram is theartnewspaper.official. And you can subscribe to the print edition of The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. If you do so before the 10th of December, you'll receive The Year Ahead, our guide to exhibitions, fairs and biannuals worldwide in 2019 with your first copy. The website, again, is theartnewspaper.com. Thanks to Edmund and Christoph and to you for listening. Next week, we'll be looking at climate change's effect on global heritage. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. <laughs>